up there at all. If you would turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. One Sunday morning, uh, the pastor noticed that little Johnny was staring up at one of the large plaques that hung in the foyer of the church. The seven-year-old had been staring at the plaque for some time, and so the pastor walked up and stood beside the boy and said, Quietly, good morning, son. Good morning, pastor, replied the young man, who was still focused on the plaque, and said, Sir, what is this? And the pastor said, Well, son, that is the name of those who have died in the service. Soberly, the pastor and the boy stood there together looking at the plaque. When Then little Johnny's voice barely broke the silence when he asked, Sir, Can you tell me, was it the morning or the evening service? Well, this morning we're here and it's Memorial Day weekend. And so Memorial Day, for many, it marks the unofficial beginning of summer. It's a big camping weekend. We have parades, we have cookouts, we have parties. Uh, But Memorial Day means a lot more than hot dogs and campers. In fact, it began as Decoration Day following the Civil War, and uh, many towns and cities across America began to have time of remembrance for those who had passed in the service and died in the war. And they began to decorate their graves with flowers, and after having two world wars, that tradition was expanded to all Americans who had lost their lives in all of the nation's wars. And in 1971, Memorial Day was officially established as a federal So what does it mean when we say Memorial Day? What is a memorial? Well, a memorial is something that is established to remind people of a person or an event. So on Memorial Day, we take time every year to remember those who've died in service to our country. They've died fighting for the freedoms that we enjoy here as citizens. And we're free to meet here without persecution because of what men and women have done overseas for our freedom. What men and women did back in the 1700s here to allow this country to be founded on the idea of freedom, willingness to stand up against tyranny. Well, in our passage this morning, Moses commands the Israelites to remember. The Israelites had been led out of the land of Egypt where they had been in slavery. And God took them out into the desert. And he there made a covenant with them. And he promised that he would give them land and that they would be a people that were set apart for God. But when they came to the land, Moses sent 12 spies to go into the land. And of the 12 that went in, 10 came back and said, There's no way we can defeat these people that live there. 
But there were two that said, with God, all things are possible. And they wanted to go on in. But because the people chose to follow the ten, they were not allowed to go into the promised land. And so for 40 years, they wandered around in the desert while that first generation that refused to follow God into the promised land died off. And so at this point, they're back. It's the second generation that's preparing to enter. Moses had struck a rock in anger, and we don't know all the details on what exactly happened with that, but Moses was not going to be allowed to enter to the promised land. So Joshua, one of those two spies, was poised to take over for Moses to lead the people into the promised land. He and Caleb were the two spies that had been faithful to God, and so they would go and lead these people into the promised land. So as they're preparing to enter the promised land, Moses reminds them what God has done for them. And we'll read that in just a second, but before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the great love that you have for us. Lord, that men and women throughout the centuries have stood up willingly, laying down their lives so that we may have freedom. But Lord, that's just a physical freedom, or just a political freedom. What we needed was far greater. So you sent your son to buy our freedom, to redeem us from the curse of sin. Lord God, as we study this passage this morning, may we always remember the great things that you have done for us. May we never forget how you have loved us and saved us. Be with us as we read this morning. Be with us as, as we Hear the word proclaimed. Lord, may it go out and not return void. Pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name by the power of your spirit. Amen. So the first thing that we see in this passage this morning is that we should not forget. Look with me at verse number 9. Only be on your guard and diligently watch yourselves so that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen and so they don't slip from your mind. As long as you live, teach them to your children and your grandchildren. The day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Assemble the people before me, and I will let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and may instruct their children. You came near and stood at the base of the mountain, a mountain blazing with fire into the heavens, enveloped in a dense black cloud. Then the Lord spoke to you from the fire. You kept hearing the sound of the words, but you couldn't see a form. There was only a voice. He declared his covenant to you. He commanded you to follow the Ten Commandments, which he wrote on two stone tablets. At that time, the Lord commanded me to teach you statutes and ordinances for you to follow in the land you were about to cross into and possess. First, he says, don't forget. Don't forget. But there is a story of three old widows who lived together. And... One sister got up to go to bed, was halfway up the stairs when she stopped and said, Was I coming up or going down? One of the sisters said, Oh, you were so, you so forgetful. You were going up to go to bed. And so she said, Okay, and went on up to bed. Well, the second sister headed into the kitchen to go make herself a sandwich. And 
Once in the kitchen, she hollered back to her sister and said, what did I come in here for? And the sister again responded with a trace of irritation, you went in to make yourself a sandwich. And then she said, I'm so glad I'm not as forgetful as both of you guys are. And as she said, she kind of knocked on the table and she got up and looked at the door and said, hello, who's there? Well, we are forgetful people. And from my experience, I've concluded that doesn't matter what age you are. It, uh, it, there are people my age who forget things all the time. I know I do sometimes. And so we have methods that we use. Uh, we put a string around our finger. We'll put post-it notes all over our computers at work. Uh, we, we use day planners to keep our lives. We'll take memory courses because most of us need a little help to remember. Well, Moses warned the Israelites not to forget what they had seen God do. Some of these Israelites that Moses were instructed had been present at Mount Sinai 40 years earlier, but they were children then. They were kids or teenagers when that was taking place. And so he says, don't forget what happened when you were young. They had seen God move in this mighty way. They had been witnesses to the covenant that God had with their parents and their grandparents but Moses wasn't just calling them to remember the covenant, not just to remember the promise, but it was calling them to affirm their commitment to the covenant. He said, this is the covenant that God made with your parents. That covenant's going to continue on to you. I'm calling you to remember and to affirm your commitment to it. Because knew, Moses knew he was going to be dying. He knew he wasn't going to be leading them into the promised land. It would no longer be his job to pass on the knowledge. Rather, it would be the people's duty to make sure that the covenant was upheld by the children who came behind, the following generations. And so he says to this younger generation of all the Israelites that they were to teach their children and grandchildren all that had happened. In fact, Moses would repeat this again in chapter 6, where he says, repeat these commands to your children Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your city gates. Moses said, don't ever let this get out of your sight. Have memorials everywhere so that you remember what God has done for you. Don't allow it to escape your mind. Keep the word of God before you at all times. And so Moses reminded the Israelites of their holy relationship that they have with God. They had heard God's voice, they had seen his power, they had received God's word, and they had a special relationship with God that no other nation at the time could claim to possess. One, what is that? Well, if we look back at verses 10 and 11, we see that God came near to them. God came near to them, and we can read the story of this encounter in Exodus 19 in more detail, but we've just had it summed up in these two verses. But when God came down from heaven to personally instruct his people, he desired a personal relationship with Israel. He wanted to reveal himself to them, and he reveals himself to us through his word. So we have his word. They had his word. Because he wanted to reveal himself. God is a self-revealing God. He wants his people 
to know him. He wants his people to worship him. And so he reveals himself by going to Israel. These beings he knew everything about, he wanted to teach them. He wanted to love them. He wanted to guide them in a relationship with him. And the basic lesson for Israel to learn at Mount Horeb was that they were to fear and to revere God. The word there is yira, which means terrible or dreaded or awesome or afraid. They were to have this great reverence and this great respect for God because he's this consuming fire, is what it says in Deuteronomy 4.24. He appeared to them in such a way that the people were terrified of God's awesome power. In fact, he, he literally put the fear of God in them. In chapter 20 of Exodus, it says all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled, and they stood at a distance, and they were afraid. They said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us, or we will die. And Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. The fear of the Lord was was and is a prerequisite for God's people. Fear of the Lord produces wisdom. Fear of the Lord is what produces salvation. Isaiah wrote, Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. So God's, God came near to his people to have a relationship with them and to teach them to fear him. And because they fear him, they were to follow his commands. Yet, we look and we go, oh, okay, all that was in the Old Testament. We're not under the Old Testament anymore, right? We're not under the Old Covenant. Now we're under the New Covenant. But, so this doesn't apply to us, right? Well, when the time came for the New Covenant, the New Promise, God followed the same form. Jesus came to dwell among his people. Just as God, as Yahweh had come down to the Israelites, the Son of God left his home in heaven to come down to man and to live with his people. In fact, Paul writes, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself and took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. So Jesus came to us. He was born of a virgin. He came to us as a man, yet he was God in the flesh. And for 33 years, he walked with man. He lived a life that was perfect. There was absolutely no sin in, in him. He was a living example for all of us to follow of what it looked like to fear God. No other religion claims that God You have to have deeds that get you to God. You have to confess the right words to get to God. But we don't have that. God came to us. God left his home in glory and came down to dwell with his people. What a great God we have. Then we look at 12, and four, 12 through 14. God not only came near to them, but God spoke to them. When he appeared to the Israelites, he didn't have a physical form. 
They saw him as fire, yet they heard his voice, and because of that, Israel would become a people of God's word. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, so what advantage does a Jew have, or what is the benefit of circumcision? He says it's considerable in every way, because first of all, they were entrusted with the very words of God. God came down from heaven to speak to his people, and he gave them a promise. He made a covenant with them, and a, and a covenant is something that's greater than a contract. It's something that's greater than an agreement. It's literally adding possession of oneself to another. So God says, I will be your God. I belong to you, and you will be my people. You belong to me. There's a, an exchange of persons there. And in this covenant, the Israelites were granted special privileges because they were recipients of God's covenant grace. He says, first of all, I'm going to give you land. He would lead them into the promised land that Moses is preparing them to enter into, and they would conquer the people, and they would take possession of it, and if they failed to hold to the covenant, they failed to keep God first, then after some time, they would lose the land. And we see that that is Indeed, what happens, they're removed from the land. But I would argue that I think probably the more important promise is the second part there, that he would be, they would be his people. And we'll talk more about this in just a a moment, but note that they would be a special people, they would have a special relationship with God, and they would have a special mission from God. But in order to receive the promise... They had to be faithful to God. So in order to do that, he gave them some commands to follow. He gave them his law. And the law would dictate every area of their lives, and they were to live all their lives in total devotion to God because there was no distinction for the Israelites between, well, this is my my church life, my my, uh, sacred life, and this is my secular life. It was all one thing. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6, uh, we have the command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus added to that to say, with all your mind as well. And Jesus said that this is the most important commandment, to love the Lord your God. And it's the foundation for all the other commandments. In fact, in the next chapter, Moses repeats the Ten Commandments that God had given him to Israel. And the first four relate to how Israel relates to God, and then the last six relate to how Israel uh, relax, uh, reacts with one another, interacts with one another. But he says, if you remain in your commitment to God, then you would keep the law that God has given you. But what happens if you fail to keep the law? What are the consequences of not following God's commands? Well, for the Israelites, first of all, it was a loss of land. I already said that. If, if they failed to follow his commands, then the, the land would be taken away from them. And uh, we see that Israel was indeed exiled from their land. And they were taken over by foreign nations because they failed to maintain their end of the bargain. They failed to follow God and love God and follow his law. But second of all, we see that their idolatry leads to death. Because failure to keep God in his right position, failure to keep God as the most important thing in our lives, leads to death. And we'll talk more about that here in just a second. And then the third consequence would be that the nation would suffer for their disobedience and their apostasy. So God taught the people what it means to be his chosen people. 
But what does that mean for us? We're not Israel. We're, we're Christians, right? Well, Jesus came to teach us. While he was on earth, he taught his disciples. He taught the people what it meant to be part of the kingdom of God. And even after he ascended into heaven, he continued to give wisdom by the Holy Spirit to his apostles to continue to instruct us and to continue to instruct the church by his wisdom. In fact, the New Testament is filled with commands from Christ that as Christians, we are to follow. In fact, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked which of the commandments are the greatest, and he said that it is to love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. That all of the law and all of the prophets, in fact, so basically all of the Old Testament depends on these two commands. Love God and love people. So that's what we are to do. So Moses was telling the Israelites not to forget, but instead pass on everything that you have gained, everything that you've experienced to the next generation, and we are to do the same. We are to tell of what God has done. Well, look with me at verse 15. For your own good, be extremely careful, because you do not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you out of the fire at Horeb, not to act corruptly and make an idol for yourselves in the shape of any figure, a male or female form, or the form of any beast on the earth, any winged creature that flies in the sky, any creature that crawls on the ground, or any fish in the waters under the earth. When you look to the heavens and see the sun, moon, and stars, all the array of heavens, do not be led astray to bow down and worship them. The Lord your God has provided them for all people everywhere under heaven. So he says, don't forget. Don't forget what God has done and watch yourselves. Pay attention to what you're doing. Don't go astray. Because they had not seen an image of God when he appeared to them. God spoke to them out of a cloud. He spoke to them out of a fire, but they didn't have a physical likeness of God. And so there's an inherent command in that fact. If God is an invisible God, which he is, then we don't need anything physical to, to worship. Don't make for yourselves a form of the invisible God. He doesn't need a form. He is the creator God. If he wanted to appear to them in a form... He could have done so, but instead he spoke to them while he was invisible. The Hebraic term translated here as corrupt means to ruin or to destroy or to annihilate. And to make any kind of image for God would not only make God angry, but it would destroy the people who created the image. And in fact, we saw that this takes place while Moses was going up to get the Ten Commandments comes down and the people had made this golden calf as an image of the invisible God. And Moses was so distraught, he broke all ten commandments at once. Remember the consequences of not following the commands of God. It says idolatry would lead to death. And when people create an image of God, that tends to become their God. It becomes elevated to equality with God, and nothing should take God's place. So he says, don't allow anyone or anything to take 
God's place. For the greatest danger in Israel, or for Israel, as they go into Canaan, would be to look at all the nations around them, to see all of these nations bowing down to these stone or gold or silver, these, these idols that have been made by man, these false gods. And Israel had already worshipped false gods in Egypt. They had experienced the consequences of those actions several times. And Moses reminds them, in fact, of their idolatry that took place at Baal Peor in Deuteronomy 4.3. If you look back at Numbers chapter 25, which we're not going to turn there right now. But when Yahweh saw what was happening, they were worshiping Baal. What happened? He had Moses and the leaders of Israel put to death those who worshiped Baal. And then Baal comes back again later. In 1 Kings, under King Ahab of Israel, the prophet Elijah has this great contest on top of Mount Carmel where the the prophets of Baal are cutting themselves and dancing around and trying to get fire to come from heaven. And and I I kind of like Elijah when he's kind of cocky about God. He says, you know, put put water on it. Put water on it. You know, let's let's make stone and, and put a bull on it and let's dig a trench and put so much water on it the trench overflows with all the water. And he, he mocks the, the, the prophets of Baal, saying, well, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he can't hear you because he's indisposed. Maybe he's gone on vacation. You need to sing and, and worship louder. And he keeps provoking them. And then, of course, nothing happens. And then Elijah steps up and says, all right, it's God's turn. And fire comes down from heaven and consumes not just the beast, but the stones, and the water is gone. All that's left is a charred piece of earth. And once again, what does God have Elijah do? Take the sword and slay the false god. Because to worship anything else besides God is idolatry. In fact, Warren Wiersbe says this, To worship other gods, little g, is to worship nothing and to become nothing. Because idolatry leads to punishment that is death. It leads to destruction. It leads, for the Israelites, it leads to exile from the land. And the whole nation would be punished because of their actions. But the invisible God did, in fact, become visible for us. In the person of Jesus Christ. Look at John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. God decided to reveal himself to his people through his Son when the right time came. He wrapped himself in flesh. He became human and came to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And prior to Jesus, no one had ever seen God face to face. No one had been allowed to look upon the face of God. Even Moses, when he asked God, can I see you? Can I look upon your face? God told him, you can't look upon my face or you will die. But I'll put you in the cleft and I'll place my hand over you. And then when I walk away, you'll be able to see my back. The seraphim in heaven, they can't look upon God. So they have their faces covered in in his presence. The only one who has ever seen God in all of his glory, is God himself. 
but he reveals himself to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we look to Jesus to know God. We look to Jesus as the one and only way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Then look at with me at verse 20. But the Lord selected you and brought you out of Egypt's iron furnace to be a people for his inheritance as you are today. So he says, remember whose you are. Remember who you belong to. Don't forget who you are and whose you are. He contrasts Israel with all the other nations. Israel was unique, not because there was anything special about them, but because Israel had been selected by God, saved by God, to be used to serve God. First, they were selected by God, and that means that they were taken or seized by force. Now, how did God take Israel by force? Well, he sent ten plagues upon Egypt to seize them from the Egyptians, to lead them out into the promised land, to be with him. There was nothing inherently special about Israel. They were just people like everyone else. But God chose them because he had made a promise to Abraham. He had made a promise to Abraham that if you follow me, you go and be a blessing to the nations, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. And so God chose Israel because they were the people he chose. They would be his people, and he would be their God. But in the New Testament, things expanded out. He said, no longer is it limited to Israel. Rather, it's the Christian who has been selected by God, not because we have some great ability, not because of anything that's special about us, but simply because of the grace of God toward us. Because Christ loved us, Christ died for us, and Christ was resurrected from the dead for us. And God drew us by His Spirit to come to Him. And when we respond to that in faith, you become part of God's family. You become in a covenant with him, and you're set as separate for God to fear and to worship him. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So then, dear friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit and bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. So if you're a Christian, you have been selected by God. You've been saved by God. The Israelites had been subjected to slavery in Egypt, as we already said. They were in slavery for hundreds of years. Then God intervened. He freed them from slavery in Egypt, and he led them out of Egypt, away from the slavery, and into the promised land. And Moses was reminding them, don't forget where you were. Don't forget what could have been if it weren't for God. Do you remember what it was like for you before you met Jesus? Do you remember 
how your life was before Jesus. Do you ever think about how things might have been different for you if Christ had not intervened in your life? If you'd never been saved, what would your life look like now? How different would it be? Maybe there are some that are here today who are still stuck in slavery because you haven't accepted Christ. Maybe you've been feeling that way for a long time. Remember, the Israelites were stuck for about 400 years in Egypt. Maybe you feel like it's been a long time. Maybe you've even begun to give up hope. Well, let me give you some hope today. There's only one thing that you and I can do to get out of the curse of sin. That is to place your faith and trust in Jesus If you look for it in your works of righteousness, you're not going to find it. But if you place it in Jesus, he's already done it. Because we are saved by Christ. Paul wrote, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That's exactly what Christ did for us. He took the price of death that was upon us. He paid the penalty that was due us and was hung on a tree. He bore our sin on a cross and became a curse for us. It is only by his death on the cross and the resurrection from the grave that we can lay hold to the claim of victory over sin and death. We are saved only by Jesus. But that's not the end. Salvation isn't the end. A lot of times we want to go, okay, well, I'm saved. I'm good to go. Freedom is being allowed to break the bonds of sin so that we can worship God truly. It is letting go of chasing after the things of our pleasure to seek the things that please God and not ourselves. It is to work not for our salvation, but because of the love of God. Look, that we are to serve God as his people. Genesis 12, I mentioned earlier, the Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Israel was to be a blessing to the nations. They were to, to tell them about God. They were to point them to God. They were to worship God in all that they do, but they failed. They ceased to be a blessing to all the other nations because they looked like all the other nations. They were exiled for it because of their disobedience to God. They, even when they returned to exile or from exile, they were so proud of their status as the chosen people of God that they failed to be a blessing to the nations around them and to proclaim Yahweh as the one true God. But Jesus chose his church to bless the nations. 1 Peter 2.9, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus calls us. If you're a Christian here today, God has called you to move out of the dark world and into the light. And he has asked you and commanded you 
to be a light to the nations, to bring glory to Him, to worship Him in all that we do. And that the, the way that we do that is to make Christ known, to share with the people around us who are still living in sin, to share with the people around us who are still living in dark, to be a light to them with a message of hope, the message of salvation, the message of Jesus. Yet, church, we have become so like the world that we've become ineffective at proclamation. Campbell Morgan said the church did the most for the world when the church was least like the world, but we have become so much like the world that it's hard to make a difference, hard to tell the difference. But we've been selected by Jesus. We've been saved by Jesus to serve Jesus as messengers to the world, to serve as ambassadors to the lost, to serve as ambassadors to the fallen, and to say, listen, Christ died for you. Christ loves you, and he wants to free you. Are we living in such a way that we are serving him and bringing honor and glory to him? Are we proclaiming him in all the nations? Are we proclaiming him in our nation? Are we even proclaiming him to the people across the street? Are we proclaiming him in the streets? Are we serving him? Are we acting as if we remember that we belong to God and not to this world. And so this morning, while it's important for us to remember those who have fought for our freedom, and we honor those who have given their lives for our country, it's much more important that we remember what God has done for us in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. He came for us, came to us to dwell among us, to teach us what it means to fear God, provide an example of what it looks like to live a life in fear of God and where to follow him. We are to follow him in suffering. We are to follow him in praise to make the message of the gospel known to all the world. Jesus suffered and died a terrible death to bring about our salvation. He willingly laid down his life Picked it back up again so that our lives could be free. He's called us to be his ambassadors to the world. How have you responded to that call? Would you please stand as we have a